would you take a moment and, and would you just join with me in a word of prayer just to open this service up? Father, we come before you right now in Jesus' name, and we are so thankful, God, for what you're doing. We acknowledge your presence in this place right now. Father, we know that you are with us. Your word declares to us that you never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, we want to take a moment and just put our minds upon you. We want to be aware of you, aware of your presence. We know you're here and we know you're moving. Father, we thank you for what you're about to do. Father, and I pray that the words that I'm about to speak, God, would penetrate hearts and lives. And Father, that you would change us. Father, not just stir us, but change us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you know last week I was uh, gone. Kathy and I were at a conference uh, last week. And I want to just take a minute and share with you something that really is heavy on my heart. I went to this conference, and once again, it, 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 this subject that we're going to talk about really became very heavy on me. We went over to California, specifically to Orange County. I have a friend there that pastors a church. His name is Carl Friedrich. <clears throat> and Carl Friedrich used to be the associate pastor of this church a long time ago. In 1984, he was here as associate pastor. To the church, he really took me under his wing. Uh, he began to disciple me and, and, and befriend me and really uh, input into my life. Uh, the truth is, is Pastor Carl is probably um, uh, very much responsible for my entry into the ministry. Uh, I remember one day he come to me, I was probably 18, 19 years old, he come to me and he said, hey, would you like to come to a Bible study? And I was up for it, and I said, sure. And so we met uh, at the park downtown called Hubs Park. The swing that we sat on is still there. And so we met in the park, and he began to talk to me, just wanting to get to know me, and and uh, he asked me what my plans for the future were. What was I going to do? Boy, and I had my life planned. You know, I was, I was currently in college. I was in, in, in college to, in chemical engineering. That was my major. And I thought I was going to become a world-famous chemist and that I was going to build chemistry plant or, um, or chemical plants all over the United States and the world. And I was planning on getting rich, and I had my plan to have my candy apple red Corvette and all of that stuff. And so I had a well-thought-out plan for a 19-year-old. And, and, uh, but there was a problem. I knew that I was called into the ministry. I had been called into the ministry at about 16 years old, and I knew that. Uh, but I, I, I kind of wanted to do my thing first. How many know what I'm talking about? I, I thought, you know, I'll do my thing, and when I'm done with my thing, then, God, I'll do your thing. And Carl was asking me about that, and so I was telling him my story, and he says, uh, so are you going to do anything for God? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, when I, when I get rich and famous, I'll probably back off that, and I'll go to Oral Roberts University or something and get a degree in theology, and maybe I'll teach a couple Bible studies. You know, I'll, I'll do something like that. And he goes, well, that sounds like a good plan. He goes, can I make a suggestion? And I said, sure. He goes, how about you stay here? We'll disciple you and send you out to be a pastor. And I went, whoa, that's something to think about. So I thought about it for a little while, about a month, and finally came to the conclusion that that's really what God was up to in my life. And so I went home and announced to my mom and dad, I'm quitting college. <laughs> it went over a little quieter than that. Let me. They weren't quite as thrilled about it. Not that they didn't think that being a pastor was a good thing. I, I knew that they thought that that was a good thing, but, you know, inevitably that's you know, that's a 90-degree turn at 100 miles an hour. It's like kind of throws everybody off the apple cart. And uh, I had my life kind of planned out. And, and But that's what I did, and I became a pastor. Well, as time went on, um, my relationship with Carl began to get a little bit more and more distant. And recently, I have been really uh, working at uh, reestablishing that relationship, going over to his conferences. And and Carl's been in that area for quite a while now, and he's got just a wonderful, wonderful work of God going on. The church is alive, it's full of life, it's exciting, and they do a lot of things, they, and they do them really, really well. But every time I've gone to his conference, and I've gone to it a couple times, I leave with the same inspiration. And this time when I left, I left with a burden. 
It wasn't just an inspiration, it was a burden. Because I witnessed something that takes place in that church that I think is just outrageously outstanding. I, I, excuse me for all of my uh, uh, description there, but, but the reality is they do a lot of things very well, but they do one thing exceptional. And that is they have communicated a very clear vision and the congregation has embraced it in a way that is producing real, tangible, exciting fruit. And when I walk away from that, I think to myself, man, this is so powerful, so powerful. And like I say, they do a lot of things well, but the one thing that really is moving is they know what their purpose is. They know what they're about. Now, I want to begin this evening, or this morning, this weekend, I should say, I want to begin a new series that is designed to express our vision at Praise Chapel. Because there's a lot of things we do in our ministry, and we do them well. But there is one thing that we must never neglect. And that's what I want to speak about in this series of sermons. A couple years ago, I preached a sermon entitled, The Why of It All. It was an attempt to express the importance of understanding our purpose. Now, you need to hear me, because there is a power that comes when we understand the purpose for our lives as individuals and a church. It's only when we understand the why of it all that we can truly begin to grow into what God has for us. Even if you were to look into business and you were to compare businesses, successful businesses from those that are struggling, oftentimes what you'll find is that a business or a corporation that focuses on the how of what they do Rather than the why, they spend most of their time struggling. It's when a corporation or a church or an individual understands why they do what they do, what is their purpose, that they become very successful. Because how many know there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways how to do something, but if you don't know why you're doing it, oftentimes it falls very flat. So the question is, why do we do what we do? Have you ever thought about, why do we come to church? What's the point? Why, why do we worship? Why do we preach? <clears throat> why do we pray? Why? I mean, why do we have ministries like children's church and youth ministry and nursery? And why do we have greeters and ushers and information desk workers and people who clean? Why do we do donuts and coffee between services? Why do we have prayer teams that come up after service? Why do we take an offering? Why, why do we have office hours? Why do we have a van ministry? Why do we do Bible studies and men's groups and women's groups? Why do we make flyers and brochures and write articles for the bulletin and put up banners? Why, are, why do we open our doors to those that are broken, hurting, lost, addicted, and dysfunctional in Jacob's Ladder? Why, why do we gather in prayer meetings and services and pray for people in those services like Breakthrough? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Well, most people would think, well, that's what churches do. That's just what churches do, right? Or they think that that's how you get people involved. You create a bunch of ministries so people can get involved. Or, or simpler yet, that's just how stuff gets done. Well, yes, that's what churches do. And yes, that's how you get people involved. And yes, that is how stuff gets done. But if you stop there and assume that those things are just the mechanics of church, then you have greatly miss the point altogether. Let me say that again. If you assume that everything we do, whether it's cleaning or, 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 or putting a flyer together or shaking somebody's hand or doing a ministry, whatever it is, if you think that's just what churches do, then you have missed the point. See, we do what we do, everything we do, for one reason 
and one reason only. And that is for the one who desperately needs a savior, who needs a healer, who needs a deliverer. We do what we do for the one who is still lost, who is still in sin, who is still broken. We, we, we do it for them so that they, like us, can come and receive grace, find hope, and receive and experience transformation. That's what it's all about. It's for the one. It's the one person in your life. It's the one that maybe you shake hands with. It's the one maybe you're sitting next to right now. Or maybe it's the one that you've talked to and invited to come to church. The reason we do what we do is for that one, so that they can come to know God. Since the very beginning of this church, when it was founded, all the way back in 1978 in Chloride, Arizona. So what, Praise Chapel was founded in Chloride? It was. There's a lot of history you may not know about this church. 1978, a man by the name of Alan Cates came from California, specifically the the East L.A. area, Whittier, and he came and he pioneered a church in Chloride called Praise Chapel. Well, after some time, he moved it into Kingman, and it has become what it is today. But from the very beginning, that very meager beginning, we have used slogans like this. We are a lighthouse in a dark and dying world. Or we are a church that exists for those who are not yet part of it. Or we've said things like this, we are not building a big church, but rather we are building big people. And all of that was to express our vision, but it hasn't always been clear. And it's my goal that we as a church and as individuals understand in clarity what the vision of this church really is. And I believe this morning that it is absolutely necessary that we don't just understand the vision, but that we become personally invested in it. It's not enough to simply understand the why. It's to embrace the why. To say that I am a part of it. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, I want to begin by looking at one verse of Scripture. And this verse of Scripture is found in Mark 16, verse 15. This is where Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. But before he goes, he gives one last instruction. How many know last words are important? Last words are, are generally, last words are oftentimes the most important words that we hear from people. And in this case, Jesus' last words are worth paying attention to. And he says this. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He is speaking to his disciples who will ultimately become apostles. But he is not just speaking to them because that phrase or that sentence, that statement has carried through the ages of time and Jesus is speaking that to you and I. Now it's interesting to note that the word go carries a significant meaning behind it. Most of the time when we read this scripture and hear sermons preached about it, we always put it in terms of the Great Commission. It is known as the Great Commission, and that's truly what it is. And oftentimes what happens in that is missionaries and evangelists are inspired, they're challenged, and they are ignited. And that's wonderful, and I don't make light of that, but there is something more here that goes unseen that we need to see. This word in the Greek is much larger and more detailed than we may really understand. The word go here literally means to go from one place to another. It means to proceed, to travel, to live, to conduct one's life, to behave, to walk. It's not just a statement of sending 
but it's also a statement of doing. It carries with it the idea of daily practice. So we could read Mark 15, 16, 15. We could read it this way. As you go daily into the world, into your world, preach the gospel. See, the Great Commission has never been meant for just missionaries and evangelists. It's meant for every Christian. No matter who you are, where you've come from, or how much you know, you are called. You are called to go. You are called to go daily into this world and preach the gospel. So what does that mean? Let's break that down just for a moment. What does that really mean? Because oftentimes that can seem a little ominous. It can seem a little overwhelming and maybe even a little scary. Well, you, you want me to go to Africa and preach? That's not what he's saying. There are some that will go to Africa and preach the gospel. But what he is saying to you and I is that we are called to go into our world daily. When we go to the grocery store, when we go to the gas station, when we go to the, the, uh, the, the, the dentist's office or the doctor's office or, or when we go to school or when we go to work or we, we go to a restaurant, whatever it might be, we go and we preach the gospel. Now, lots of people, they look at that and they go, well, what does it mean to preach the gospel? It means to present the good news of the kingdom. Sometimes we can convey the good news of the kingdom really efficiently in a smile. Sometimes it's a kind word. Sometimes it's simply being patient with a worker that is under pressure. Sometimes it's just being pleasant. Amen. It's, ex it's the exercise of learning to love well. It's loving people. It's realizing that the person you're talking to is the object of God's love. That they were actually on Jesus' mind when he died on that cross. That they too should receive the grace of God. So many times as Christians, we go into our world daily carrying the very answer that this fallen world needs, but nobody would ever know it. Come on now. Somewhere along the line, we have got to catch this vision that what Jesus was saying was not just to the elite or the gifted or the special, but he was speaking to his church. Go share your testimony. Tell someone that I care about them and I love them. Be patient and kind and gentle. Allow the fruits of the Spirit to speak through your life. Let your good works declare the glory of God in heaven. Preach the gospel. You'll find that if you do that, that at times God will give you words to speak. You'll find that you will have an answer for problems that you never thought you knew. You'll find that there'll be a wisdom and a grace, an ability to tap into somebody's life and to make a difference. You're called to go, to go daily. So I want you to think about this with me for a little bit and look at Matthew the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. This is a portion of Scripture that I just love. It says this, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into 
his harvest. I love this portion of scripture because it reveals so much about Jesus. It gives us a real view into his heart. Because in this portion of scripture, we find Jesus doing what Jesus does. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, he's bringing freedom. But the Bible does not present him as this stuffy, staunch, mechanical, sterile, boring rabbi. But he is presented as a man filled with passion for what he sees. He is moved, the Bible says, with compassion. Look at verse 36. It says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Jesus saw their departure from God. Jesus saw the depravity and sin. He saw their destiny in hell. He saw their despair without a shepherd, and that moved him. It touched him. You say, well, what does that look like? What does that feel like? When your child is sick and you would do almost anything, even taking the sickness on yourself to relieve your child's pain, that's compassion. He's saying, I get you. I see you. I can feel you. Jesus did not come to judge. He came to save. Are you hearing me? And so when Jesus sees this people group, when he sees the multitudes, he's moved with compassion. Oh, that it would be said of us that we would be moved by what we see. The problem is, oftentimes, the only thing we see in life is ourself. We get so calloused and we get so numb to what's around us that we're no longer moved by the plight of a fallen world. He was moved, the Bible says, with compassion. And then he turns to his disciples... And I imagine with tears in his eyes, he says, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. He says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In effect, what Jesus is saying is, can you see it? Can you hear it? It's the call of the harvest. It's truly what Jesus was and is passionate about. Church, we've been called and we have been sent. We need to be able to see and hear the call. We need to be able to see the need. We need, this morning, a passion for souls. What a wonderful thought that is, a passion for souls. It's probably one of our greatest needs. Yet for so many, it has become a forgotten expression. For years, it was a tremendous motivating force in Christianity. But the problem is today, with the emphasis on things like technology and programs and style and growth and all this other stuff... We have almost forgotten the emphasis on a consistent winning of souls. Now listen, I'm not against technology. I'm not against programs. I'm not against style. I'm not against growth. But listen, God can have revival in a barn. He has. If you ever do any reading about revivals, most of them started off in very meager places. And if you don't buy into them, they go all the way back to the manger. The author of revivals showed up in a barn. Jesus was born in a manger. God doesn't need fancy things. But listen, what are all those fancy things about? See, that's what we got to understand. Because remember, we do what we do for a reason. 
Why would we update the sanctuary? Why would we remodel the stage and paint the walls and change the ceiling, add lights? Why would we do that? Because it's bait. So what? God calls us fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. Have, have you ever gone fishing without bait? It's a drag. You don't catch any fish. I remember years ago when I was a kid living in Michigan, my dad and I would always go fishing with our next door neighbor. His name was Bob Crum and his son was Scott. Scott was my best friend. And we always would go out into Lake Huron. We'd go specifically into Saginaw Bay and we would go fishing for perch and we always caught with them, with them. We always caught two, three, four hundred perch. And we'd have this big fish fry, and it was great, and ate vegetables out of the garden. Yeah, it was living. Let me tell you, it was good. But when me and my dad would go fishing, it was a different story. Me and my dad, man, we would bang around. We'd have a metal boat. You know, we'd have this, you know, stupid rowboat. We'd be dropping stuff. It would be, sound like a shotgun underwater. All the fish are at the other end of the lake. And we're, you know, we're throwing stuff in the water. And I remember one time, I, I, seriously, I remember my dad had his pole in the water like this. And all of a sudden he gets this little nibble. And he's so excited. He, he goes, I got one. He jerks it. He's going to set the hook. I th- thought he was fishing for marlin. But remember, we're going for perch. They're only about that big. And he jerks that fish so far out of the water, it goes to the top. I mean, it snaps and rips its face off because of the hook in its mouth. It kills this poor fish and falls in the water. The we're the great white fish. I remember one time having a minnow on my hook. And I'm going to cast my, my line. I, I cast it out there, but I cast it in such a way that it snapped. And when it snapped, actually it snapped backwards, it, it caused the minnow to fall into the bottom of the boat. And so my hook is empty. And I didn't know about it. And about 15 minutes goes by, and then I look down, and there's my dead minnow. And I'm wondering, why am I not catching anything? We need bait. You know, we, a fish, you know, think about a fish. You know, here is a fish, and, and when a shiny, you know what, lures, I always love lures. They were as much bait for me as they were for the fish. When they're shiny, you know, and I just spin them underwater and look at them. And, you know, when a shiny, that fish is, ooh, ooh. You know, and he's, he goes after it, you know. When I was dating my wife, she used to dress up. It was bait. It was bait. <laughs> Come on. She could lead me anywhere she wants. It's like, yes, dear. <laughs> it still works. 32 years later, all, it still works. The bait still works. We do what we do. Why do we do it? Well, we don't do it because, because we just want to be a rock and roll show. We do it because this is what this generation responds to. And our passion is for the souls of men. And we want to bring them in so that we can preach to them. It's bait. God can have revival in a barn. But he wants us to have a passion for souls. We need to rekindle That passion. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Soul winning is the chief business of every Christian minister. Indeed, it should be the passion of every true believer. Are you hearing me? I know this doesn't always set well with modern Christianity, but nonetheless, it's true. See, the vision here at Praise Chapel begins with reaching the lost. See, many of the great men of God and the giant leaders of God's people in the church were marked by a passion for souls. John Knox lived in the 1500s. And it's said of John Knox, and I've actually been to his house. It's said that, and there is, there's a window that overlooks the street. It's, the, it's in Edinburgh, Scotland. And, and, and his, his window, his, this window in this little, little, this little tiny nothing place, it's almost like a closet, overlooked the street. The, they call it the Royal Way. And as people would walk up and down that street, he would be on his knees praying for everyone that walked under. And you can still go there today and see the impression of where his knees wore on the wood because he was in prayer so much. He said this, he goes, give me souls, give me Scotland unless I die. How can I sleep, he would pray, unless my Scotland gets saved. 
His prayers were so powerful and so intense that the queen, Mary Queen of Scots, made this statement. She says, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all of the armies of England. And where did that come from? That came from a passion for souls. John Wesley, he said this. He said, let us all be of one business. We live for this, to save those souls that God would give us. He said, that's our one thing. William Booth was asked by the king of England, what is the ruling force of your life? And he replied, sir, some men's passion is for gold. Other men's passion is for fame. But my passion is for the souls of men. Billy Graham once said, my one purpose in life is to help people find a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle says this in 1 Corinthians 9.22. He says, I've become all things to all men that I, by, that I might by all means save some. Jesus put it this way in Mark 18.11. He says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Imagine what can be done if we would kindle that kind of passion for souls. Imagine if we would embrace, personally invest into the vision of the house. See, that's what, when I went to that conference, that's what I saw. Hundreds of people personally invested in the vision of the house to win souls, to reach the lost. You know, when you gain that kind of perspective, a lot of the other things pale in comparison. All of a sudden, the things, the nitpick things that seem to irritate us and rattle us just aren't that important anymore. Because, see, when you get your eyes off of self, all of a sudden life changes. The problem is, is we're far too self-fixated. It's estimated that 97,000 people die every day without Jesus. The need is desperate. You know, and I think about Kingman. I love Kingman. Kingman's a great place. We, we live in a great place. We don't have to deal with hurricanes. Aren't you glad about that? We don't have to deal with tornadoes. Maybe the random dust devil every now and then. But not tornadoes. We don't have to deal with flooding. Oh, you know, every now and then we get a wash that runs a little bit. We don't have to deal with, you know, four foot, five foot, six foot of snow. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Until you've been there and lived in that, you really don't understand the pain that that is. It's really cool the first day when you're snowed in. The second day and third week is a drag. When you're a little kid, you're a little kid and the power goes out because all the ice storms have taken all the electrical wires out and you uh, get to you know, cook over the fire because you have a fireplace. That's real fun when you're a kid. But when you take all the food out of the refrigerator and put it in the snowbank outside because it's... Yeah, that's a drag. <laughs> Trust me, we live in a great place. We do. But you know what? There's some glaring problems in Kingman. We have a meth problem in Kingman that's overwhelming. He said, well, what, what is that? Well, we ought to legally... Hey, wait a second. Legislation will never fix the problem. Jesus will. What we need to be is about His business. What we need to do is pray. What we need to do is present the gospel. We don't need to go protest. We don't need to do that. We need to engage heaven. We need to get a hold of the horns of the altar with a passion for souls and say, God, give us kingmen or we'll die. Let Kingman be saved. We need to go into this place and change this place because we love this place. Can you say amen? amen. On Facebook a little while ago, I think it was about three weeks ago, I was kind of disturbed by something I saw on Facebook. 
not really sure yet, even if it's a serious article, but it is an article enough that had enough truth to it that it, it bothered me. It said Kingman in the state of Arizona is the number two white trash town in Arizona. That bothers me. I find that term highly offensive. But the, the criteria, I went and looked it up, and the criteria that they go by is they talk about the, the drug problem and they talk about you know, uh, the poverty level and all of that, and the truth is we have it. But Jesus has an answer. We ought to, we, when we get a passion for souls, we, we can turn this into the healthiest town in Arizona, if not America. You say, can that be done? It was done in Spokane, Washington in the early 1900s. You say, are you serious? Yeah, a man by the name of John Lake who went into that town in about uh, 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 1930. And he began to set up healing rooms. And he began to preach the gospel in Spokane, Washington. In that time became known as the healthiest town in all of America. Why? Because a man dared to believe God. Somewhere, church, that's what we got to get to. I want to close this morning with a story that you may have heard before, but I am sure there are details that you have not heard before in this story. This story is about the significance and the power of a faithful witness. It's about a man that you probably have never heard this man's name before, but this man has had probably more to do and has a greater effect on, uh, on, the, on the state of Christianity in the last 160 years than probably anyone else. His name was Edward Kimball. Most of you probably have never heard of Edward Kimball. But Mr. Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. He was a man of prayer and a man with a passion for souls. And he had a Sunday school class that was often filled with the most rowdy, difficult boys that could be found. There was one particular young man in his class that was exceptionally difficult. He would frequently fall asleep during service. I don't know nothing about that. He was hard to reach. He was disrespectful and completely disinterested. Yet Mr. Kimball remained faithful to the word and to the witness to these kids. And on April 21st, 1855, Mr. Kimball went to this young man's place of work. He found the young man in the stock room of a shoe store. And he spoke to him there, and he just told him of the love of Christ. Shortly after that, this disinterested, difficult, disrespectful young man gave his life to Jesus Christ, and he devoted his life to God. That man, that young man, was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody became the greatest evangelist of his time. And in his lifetime, he touched two continents for God with untold thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. And on, on June 17, 1873, uh, D.L. Moody arrived in Liverpool, England for a series of crusades. The meetings at first were very poor, but then the spirit began to move. And Mr. Moody, D.L. Moody, ended up visiting with a Baptist pastor who was a scholarly man, but he was very religious, very staunch, very staunch, very stuffy, and he was very resistant to American preachers. But soon he was transfixed and transformed by the message and the passion that Moody had demonstrated. So much so that he ended up coming to the United States and bringing revival with him. That man's name was F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer was a great theologian, and still to this day we read his books. I have about six of them. F.B. Meyer was preaching at a college in the States one day during a chapel service, and his sermon was about full surrender. He said, if you cannot tell God you are willing to give him everything, then ask him to make you willing to be willing. There was a struggling minister in that service. He was discouraged. He was beaten up. 
And he was there that day, and he said, he must be talking about me because I'm just ready to give up. I'm done. And God touched that man in a mighty way, and that struggling minister was J. Wilbur Chapman. J. Wilbur Chapman began looking for someone to help him in his evangelistic work. And he found a professional baseball player. But the problem was this young man was an alcoholic and given to drunkenness. He was a wild man. But one day, he gave his life to Jesus. That man was a man by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was quite the guy. He was quite the preacher. And he became a world-famous evangelist. He became the Billy Graham of his generation. And in 1924, (coughs) Billy Sunday preached a citywide crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina. And out of that revival meeting, a group of men came together for prayer. They began to pray for revival that Charlotte would have another great revival. As a result of that prayer meeting, God sent another man named Mordecai Ham. This evangelist set up his tent and began to have a series of revivals. In one of those revival nights, a 15-year-old young man made his way into the tent and at the altar call, gave his life to Jesus. That 15-year-old young man was Billy Graham. Billy Graham is estimated to have converted and seen some 200 million salvations in his ministry. And through his crusades and radio and TV broadcasts, he has preached over to 2.2 billion people worldwide. Countless millions of people (coughs) have been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, all because a simple, unassuming Sunday school teacher with a passion for souls made it his business to witness to a shoe salesman. Can you get that? That is the vision. We may never know the depth of the fruit that we have in our lives until we get to eternity. But I guarantee you, without a passion, there will be no fruit. And Praise Chapel, though we have many slogans, must embrace this one thing. We must reach the lost. That's why we're here. We are not here for our comfort. We are here (coughs) to be the representation of the kingdom of God for Kingman, Arizona. We are here to draw a line in the sand, to say this is what God is about, to share the love of Jesus Christ. There's another man that's an evangelist that's one of my favorites. His name is Reinhard Bunke. Reinhard Bunke in Africa particularly has had overwhelming success. He has crusades to where in one audience there's 2.2 million people in one audience. The logistics that go into having a a crusade like that is is mind-boggling. He currently, his ministry currently reports that he has over 87 million, I believe is 87 million, I could be a little bit wrong on that, but it's, it's, it's significant. 87 million filled out convert cards. His ministry has a statement. They have a, he is, he's been the one coin that has coined this statement that I believe we need to embrace. The church was born to plunder hell and populate heaven. Amen. Amen. I share this with you today because the vision is a three-pronged vision. The first part of it is to reach the lost. Next week, we're going to talk about restoring the broken. And then the week after, 
we're going to talk about releasing the faithful. The reality is what God has for us, I believe, is that we are to reach, restore, and release. And if we'll be about that, God will see fit that this room, this building, can't hold what he will do. And it's not about building a big church, but it's, reaching into the, it's about reaching into this city. You know, I, I'll say this as I close. The last two services, I pulled an altar call for salvation. <clears throat> there was no one here that needed salvation. That bothers me. Every service, there ought to be people in our service that need salvation. That gets a little dangerous. Gets a little wild and crazy. But that's okay. We'll be reaching people. Some of them won't all be what we think. They won't all. It, it will be a tough job. But it will be well worth it. And it is my prayer this morning that you embrace this. That you say, you know what? That, this is, Praise Chapel is not just a church I go to. Praise Chapel is my church. It's my community. It's my family. And I embrace its vision. See, when I went to conference and was witness to Praise Chapel, Orange County, and Carl Friedrich and his son Adam, the thing that I could sense more than anything, while they did a lot of great things, the thing that I sensed in that room, in that place, was the heart for the house, heart for the vision. They sent out a church to Albuquerque, New Mexico. They're changing all kinds of things in their youth and young adult ministries, and, and they're doing all kinds of new stuff. Why? Because they understand it's bait. They understand that's what you do to win souls. That's what you do to stay relevant so that we could speak into a generation. Now, I'm going to talk a lot more about that next week, about restoring. Because every person in this place, not only do you have a part in the reaching, you have a part in the restoration. <clears throat> you have a part in that. And we need to embrace it. Can you say amen? amen. Bow your heads with me. I wonder as every head is bowed, every eye is closed, if you're here today and you say, I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I have never asked Christ to come into my life. If that's you, would you lift your hand and say, I need Jesus. I need him. I need him. Amen. Maybe you were right with God at one time. You walked with God, but today you find yourself out of relationship with him. If that's you, raise your hand. Amen. I see those hands. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to do, before we pray for these, I want to do one other appeal. If you're a Christian in this place and you say, you know what, Pastor, I've heard what you said, and I'm willing to commit my life. I'm willing to go online and say, I'm going to embrace the vision. I am going to personally embrace and invest in this vision. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Say, that's me, Pastor. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, I'll tell you, if you couldn't raise your hand, Maybe it's because you don't understand it yet, but I'm going to tell you, this is what makes Christianity alive and full and filled with life. And I believe that God is going to do wondrous things here. So let me pray first. Let's, would you all pray with me? Say, Lord Jesus, I ask you, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord and my Savior. I surrender to you. And I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let me pray for you just before we dismiss. Father, I pray for everyone that raised their hand and even those that didn't. Father, I pray that these words, God, would penetrate their heart, that they would find good ground to be planted in. These seeds would begin to grow. And Father, that we, God, would begin to take ownership and investment into the vision. Father, that we would become soul winners. God, that you would teach us and train us. Take us down this road we should go. And Father, we're careful to give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.